can still hear, hear the birds at, at Ken's house, though. Oh, all right. I'll deal with that. Hang on. Wait. Don't don't start anything. I'll go. I'll, I'll go murder them. Where he's on. from? There's music in the air. That's right. The birds sing a pretty song. Right. Exactly. Give me, give me a moment. I've got my pellet gun. Hang on. Welcome back, everybody, to Wrapped in Podcast Episode 8. We're going to talk about the newest episode, Got a Light. This was really something. I've never seen anything like it, and I really, really enjoyed watching it and enjoy continuing to think about it. So joining us, as always, are uh, Kyle King. How are you doing, Kyle? Uh, I have no unified field theory for this, and the Robins returned as desert locust bob frogs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and and Ken Walzak, uh, thanks for joining us as always. How are you doing, Ken? I'm doing splendid. For the first time since we started this endeavor, I have a cocktail in front of me, so I am ready to go. And and Jeff Fallis, we're we're proud to have you with us this week. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm just going to quote Jerry Horn and say, "Is this real or some strange and twisted dream?" <laughs> That's right. Right. Well, you know, we've got so much to talk about. Uh, we could stop now and talk about the big picture of this episode, but really, for most of it, all of it's big picture. So I'm going to kind of refrain from diving into any particular issue and instead go into the action of the first part of this episode, the part that seemed like it was going to be a conventional, you know, episode of Twin Peaks, even Twin Peaks: The Return, which is, as we've talked about, sharply diverged from the original series. We've got a scene, you know, with Ray driving bad Coop. We just saw them leave Yankton prison. Um, Coop somehow knows that there are three tracking devices devices on their car. He uses some sort of special Black Lodge app on his phone where he clicks C, uh, which appears above fire, which appears above the word D-O-X. And uh, he gets up close behind a truck, uh, asks Ray to tailgate the truck. Uh, Robert Lodge's character from Lost Highway would not approve of this sequence at all. Bad Coop texts the dr- the license plate of the truck, which was D-E-G-W-W-8, to somebody, and somehow that works. Um, it, Ray and, and Coop have an exchange where basically uh, Coop lies to Ray and says that Daria is waiting for a call from them. Uh, Ray you know, sort of sheepishly apologizes for disappearing on him. Uh, but then ultimately says he's going to shake Coop down because he's memorized that information and he thinks it'd be worth a lot of money. 
Yeah, I, I like that there are three listening devices on the car, and they seem to spell out fire docks with me. I think that's very good. Uh, I read the license plate on the truck as Dougie Wait, uh, which is good because Dougie is not in this episode at all and has to wait around for uh, episode nine and a two-week hiatus for us to see him again. I I did think this was an interesting scene looking back at uh, the notion of why these people work for Cooper at all, because this is the first time we see somebody like Ray trying to actually work an angle in a uh, sort of boilerplate criminal kind of a way, which usually I feel like these people are neither sufficiently cowering in fear of the supernatural power of Bed Cooper nor acting like the usual kinds of criminals who are working in angle. And obviously he tries that here with uh, mixed success, as we'll discuss in a minute. But it's an interesting new take on Coop's relationship with his kind of minions to me. Right. So Coop tells Ray to pull off the highway to go onto this dirt road, you know, in what's you know clearly foreboding something bad's going to happen uh, when you, when you take the turn off the highway. Yeah. It reminded me of the Sopranos. Uh, in the episode where what's her name dies, uh, what, this, do you know what I'm, uh, t- what I'm talking Adriana about? Adriana Lazerva? Vague, yeah. Yeah, Adriana, yeah. right, right, yeah. And, and, uh, but it, it, this is something entirely different. This sequence also, yeah, it just had that kind of silent dread of like lo- the scenes in Lost Highway, you know, all the kind of driving at night scenes and, right. Um, I think there's some in, in Wild at Heart too, and just I don't know, lots of classic film noir. The the driving at night seems like a classic American trope, but just this just got just a silent dread of this. Uh, just you know, and we're like a minute and twenty seconds into the episode, and that that Lynchian dread was kicking in, so you knew it was going to be a special one from the beginning. Right, and I thought I saw a a skeleton on the left side of the road, or at least what appeared to be a skull. And then maybe some skeletal feet up in the air. Uh, I don't know. Ken, you, you said you didn't see it trying to watch it. I, I only went through it a couple times. Anyway, uh, eventually Ray wants to pull over to take a leak. And, you know, we know that what's going to happen here pretty much. Uh, Coop gets his gun out, checks to see that it's loaded, comes up behind Ray and says that, uh, t- tells Ray that he, he's going to get, he needs to give him the information that he's out half a million. And then Ray disagrees. He draws his gun and Coop shoots and jams or, you know, whatever. He's not, he's, he's not shooting whether those bullets were blanks or what. And he says, you know, tricked you fucker and shoots him twice. The, the reverberation, it sounded like the, the gunshots were had the sort of reversed effect or at least a reverse reverb on them. I thought for those two shots, they sounded a little bit, a little bit weird and uh so right so he comes up to bad coop who's now lying on the ground bleeding and is going to shoot him you know in the head or whatever to finish him off and this is where things get really really weird these spectral dirty hobos who sort of flash in and out of existence uh start running shambling doing a kind of shambling run at first, it looks like there are only two or three, but it may be as many as like 10 or 12. And they start coming towards the body. And initially, they're kind of like, they're not making any real noise, but it seems like they're almost like whooping over them, uh, worshiping the body of Coop. It, it's really hard to tell. Then they come down 
and get on his body and start pushing on his body and pulling out blood and smearing the blood all over him and all over his face. I noticed at one point as, as, and as they're doing this, Ray is just freaking out. He, 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 he falls to the ground. He's sitting on the ground. He has no idea what to take of this. And there's a, a part where the, the, the hobos kind of pick up dead Coop's head and point his eyes so, so they can, like he can see exactly what's going on with Ray. I don't know if that was like some way that there could get an extra kick of Garmin Bosia to, uh, facilitate what's going on here, which is uh, a, a C-section of a like bob head, like bag inside, inside of Coop's body uh, that, that the hobos remove. One of the most nightmarish images I've ever seen, by the way. Yeah. Right. It's not like, it's like when you see Bob's face, like that's already really scary. But when you see Bob's face in like a smiley uterus, in like a, right. like a chrysalis, like poop. Yeah. I mean, that was just like, the image that like comes up from like the worst nightmare, the only thing that like sticks with you when you come out of the dream, like that, you know, like it was, oh, yeah. Well, again, you know, we're like four minutes in yeah, the episode. There are a lot of adjectives I expected to use. Sorry, Jer. There are a lot of adjectives I expected to use to describe Twin Peaks season three. Amniotic was not one I expected to have to use. Right. That's exactly right. <laughs> right. That's exactly what I can. It reminded me of when a baby is born yep. and the water has not broken, which is called a baby being born in the cow. Yeah. And that's, what we saw with Bob's head coming out of uh, dead Coop's uh, torso. Uh, yeah. I mean, nuts, R- really, really, really nuts. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so just in an effort to make linear sense of this, knowing that it's <laughs> linear in the sense of a family circus cartoon where Jeffy is sent to the store and runs through the playground on the way. I, I'm I'm gathering that these guys are the same as or are related to Chimney Sweep Abraham Lincoln from the Buckhorn Jail slash Ominous Fuzzy Dude from the Buckhorn Morgue slash The Woodsman at the end. And if they're tied to The Woodsman, does it matter that the radio mic got a light guy also extracted a lot of blood from his victims? Yeah, no, I, I would say that, that it appears that these – particular dirty soot-faced hobos are of a piece with the spectral figure that we saw in the jail in Buckhorn uh, and the figure we saw walking through the morgue. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, as we're going to talk about later, when the show flips to 1956 New Mexico, uh, we see descending to Earth at least – we, we, the 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 got a light figure, the one who looks right. the most like, uh, who actually is a Abraham Lincoln impersonator, right? The actor who plays him, uh, and who, who does have have the very specific role of the woodsman, right? Uh, and has a very specific role of you know asking people got a light and you know doing his poetry slam on the radio station, but he also seems to have uh, underlings or assistants or other more generic, you know. Civil War hobos who are around him, uh, at least for part of those scenes in 1956. And of course, and in, in the, the 1945 scene that we're going to talk about, there are a whole ton of those guys. Right. Of, you know, who, who are not, definitely not all the woodsmen. Um, and, you know, they, they all seem to be of the same sort of character or class. We just don't really know. Now, as for the extraction of blood that we saw that the woods, the, the woodsmen specifically do, um, at the radio station, 
I don't know. I mean, I, what what he did to those people's heads reminded me of a slow motion version of what uh, the figure we now know to be called the experiment or experiment model did in the glass box in New York. Right. Or after it came out of the glass box. Yeah, and I, I <clears throat> a couple of things I like to mention about this scene. One was, I mean, you know, for people who say that this, you know, scene was such, this episode was such a radical departure from the Twin Peaks uh, of the first few seasons. We did see, I I think, to my recollection, the first time this season, that bright sort of white electrical flash that in the original series always seemed to accompany appearances of Bob. I think sometimes the appearances of giant, almost like a, of the giant, like a a lightning flash. Um, And we saw that, you know, right before. Uh, this started to happen. And also it seemed like just the way it was shot sometimes seemed like it was making Ray himself look sort of spectral or kind of see-through. Right. Uh, and then apparently someone on the internet has figured out the really low, ominous, unsettling music that's kind of being played throughout was like Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven, like slowed down 500%. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I saw that. Wow. Yay. And, um, the other thing was, oh, what was it? Yeah, my first time seeing this, I thought that, you know, the hobos were there to, like, yeah. feed on Bad Cooper, like, extract his essence in yeah. some way, which I think made it even more unsettling when, you know, it became aware that what they'd done, in fact, was some sort of blood ritual to, like, bring him back to life, you know? So, my first expectation was, like, oh, he's, you know, this was an incredible kind of, the you know, the rug's been pulled out from us. Right. Bad Cooper, who we thought was going to, you know, have this showdown with whoever, you know, in episode 17 and 18 is dead, you know, like halfway through the the, the series. So it was, yeah, but then uh, it was, and as I said, just that final lingering image of uh, the Bob and the whatever, the Chrysalis, the, the amniotic, amniotic killer Bob was, whew. Placenta yeah. Bob. Yeah. Yes. Nightmarish. Truly there were a couple of ways in which this scene made me think of The Walking Dead. One was when they descended on him and seemed to be sort of pulling bad coops entrails out and uh, smearing the blood on his face like the characters do in The Walking Dead so often that it's become like a trope now to, to walk among the dead. They're always smearing zombie viscera on themselves. Also, the bit about pulling off to pee and getting killed uh i guess i know it's bad coop that gets shot not ray who pulls off to pee but that's like the only show where people actually pull over to take a leak and end up getting killed by a zombie or whatever usually people do it because they have some trick up their sleeves some kind of uh ulterior motive i think it's good that we're talking in some detail about these creatures though right Uh, i don't know whether to call them woodsmen or whether they're just somehow related but they have that same what did you call it, JR? Like blinking in and out of existence, which made me think of that stuff that's been all over the Twin Peaks conversation this week from the missing pieces with the scene where a woodsman in the corner says something about intercourse between two worlds, right? Like that's what I assume is happening when these guys are blinking in and out. They're they're moving back and forth uh, between two worlds under the moonlight here. Right. I mean, th- th- that's right. Th- there's a scene in the missing pieces, uh, were originally you know co-originally had been cut from firewalk with me that where there are actually two woodsmen there's woodsman number one and woodsman number two woodsman number one i think is the is the only one who speaks is that right jeff i think that's right yeah and and and, and he does make this thing about going between two worlds yeah i i don't know i mean for the time being i'm just gonna call them all dirty hobos because that's 
That's what all of them except yeah. for Abraham Lincoln look like. Yeah, I think in the missing pieces, I'm not sure. Sh- I can't remember what all, because there's an electrician, there's a woodsman, but one of the first woodsmen, I think, says, we have descended from pure air. And then the man from another place says, going up and down intercourse between the two worlds. I'm not sure if all of that made it into uh, the missing pieces cut of things, but I think that was in the original script. So, yeah. Wait, there's stuff missing from the missing pieces? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Somewhere there are. David Lynch is going to make me buy this damn thing a sixth time? Yeah, this time you'll get the missinger pieces and the missing guest pieces. <laughs> In 4K. It's a, mis- it's a mysterious world. In non-linear Blu-ray. Yes. So, Ray gets into the car. He's, he's driving very fast away. Uh, from from all this madness, he gets on the phone and calls someone. He calls Philip, which is like that's huge. We we know that Philip is talking, or that Ray is talking to someone that he at least thinks is Philip Jeffries, uh, and says that that Coop found some kind of help. And Ray says that I saw something in Cooper. It may be the key to what all this is about. Uh, you think? <laughs> um, and. Uh, <laughs> And when Ray says he'll be, he's going to go to the farm and he'll be ready if Coop comes for him. Uh, not sure he will be. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny when this scene, you mentioned this, I think, Jeff, before. I thought when this was happening that this was the Black Lodge reclaiming bad Coop who did a no-no by not going back when he was supposed to. And, of course, we got to see something, you know, much more horrible. So, yeah, I mean, I, it, it's it's funny. what What is – Who's Philip working for? Who does Ray work for? I mean, Ray and Philip are obviously um, adverse to bad coop. Uh, and Philip's status is is really indeterminate. We don't know how evil he is. I think the, the direct consequence of his evil seems to be that he, based on information given him by Albert, he's, he appears to have taken out the FBI's man in Columbia so he's probably a bad guy, but they are adverse to bad coop. So I'm, I'm holding out the possibility that they might be gray Jedi, say, as opposed to uh, Sith. And I'm going to say I'm still holding out hope that uh, David Bowie <laughs> rec- uh, taped yeah. a scene as Philip Jeffries, uh, and it's going to break the internet and the cosmos. There's chatter comes. about that. Right. Yeah, they filmed amazing. some of this uh, stuff, Twin Peaks Revisited, from September 2015 to April 2016, which I like where we get like your Warren Frost and Catherine Coulson scenes. And Bowie was alive then, and he was scheduled for a day on set during the return, though uh, the actor who plays Hawk said that he couldn't come because of scheduling conflict. But um, so, uh, you know, it's out there. There's, there's reason to believe. But, Jar, we don't know for sure that this is Philip. Jeffries, right? There's other Phillips. Philip, Philip. No, Gerard. we don't. We don't. We don't. We don't. We. I. I. It could be. It. That. God. That. That would certainly change the implications yeah. of my theory that they yeah. could be a good guy. It um, has to be Philip Jeffries. But. But if yeah. Philip have if Philip Jeffries is talking on the phone to Ray, but Philip Jeffries uh, yeah, is a box. It, He's it, become it, a it, box it, in Argentina. Well, maybe <laughs> right, but no. I, I guess I'm saying it, you. You yeah, said Philip Gerard though, right? So, so yeah, Phil Gerard, like, he can talk on the cell phone, but otherwise he's got to talk through yeah, electrical yeah. outlets uh, to Dougie. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, it just seems a little okay, inconvenient. All, <laughs> Why didn't you pick up the like goddamn phone? Because Dougie can't, and Dougie can't to Doug. operate a phone? <laughs> Come on. What, did Janie, he can hand the phone to him. 
he, and then I think he would, he could he could someone shows him how to hold it to his head he could like at least listen. Uh, okay, but first um, of all, and repeat back to whatever whatever right, he hears yeah, the person right, saying. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's ever been just one of any character in this series, right? Like there couldn't be another Philip Gerard. The one in right. the lodge is saying, "Is it future or is it past?" And the other one is on the cell phone running a crime empire with Ray. You don't know, right? Well, then we get into the whole issue of like how could the arm have a doppelganger if he was the bad part of Mike, but we won't go there. He, he evolved. He was evil, right. and then he evolved. He became good, and so he had a doppelganger that was evil. That part makes perfect sense. This is the thing that's confusing me. I get that. Uh, Kyle is over there <laughs> understanding the silverware. Right. Well, what I don't understand is nine-inch nails. The nine-inch nails. The, 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 the nine-inch is it, is it? Are these like uh, scare quotes? Are they ironic quotes? Uh, but they are they are referenced as quote the end quote nine inch nails in the credits. I, I don't really have anything on them. I'm gonna say I never was that much. Yeah, it, yeah, I was never much of a nine inch fail, nails fan. But I I don't know. I like this performance and it felt appropriate uh, in a weird intense bridge to the sequence that came next. So yeah, Coop is up. And we, I really didn't see that happening. I thought that we would, you know, one of the big shockers of this episode was that Bad Coop was was over, and so there's a lot of question about what that means and how how it's going to go forward. But you know, that's not what happened. He woke up, and then everything changes. <laughs> Is everybody? <laughs> I think that's an accurate way to describe. It. Yes, or if it's an Adam Curtis documentary, and then something interesting happened. <laughs> It's like Holy everybody shit. straps in and just wishes JR yeah. good luck from here. Like, <laughs> good luck, JR. Right. Uh, man. So we, we go to White Sands, New Mexico, July 16th, 1945, uh, 529. Uh, that's Mountain Western Time or Mountain War Time. Mountain War rather. Time. Yeah. Mountain War Time, wow. which is 430 in Twin Peaks. Uh, and, and, of course, we've been instructed to remember... 4.30 by the artist formerly known as the giant. Uh, this is the Trinity project. This is the, the first uh, detonation of a nuclear bomb as part of the Manhattan project. And we see the countdown and then the explosion and the mushroom cloud. And we fly into the mushroom cloud and are taken on a very weird and strange tip. The music that plays during the scene is called Threnity for Victims of Hiroshima. Um, it's a it's a really amazing piece. It's been used in The Shining, as well as the movie Children of Men and the Wes Craven movie The People Under the Stairs. Uh, it it was written by a com- a Polish composer named Krzysztof Penderecki, who uh, grew up in ox- Nazi occupied Poland. He said that that experience influenced his creation of the piece. The piece, uh, it, it involves uh, what's called an, a, a, a method of composition or p- performance called an aleatoric approach. Of course, that means uh, a, a, a random approach, alia meaning you know, dice in Latin, where the performer is given license to do or or perform uh, on their instrument 
whatever they want to within some range, like any note they want to, but they can only vary it by a quarter tone. Um, and the score of the piece is, is non-traditional because it's based on time, like literally a, like, like minutes and seconds as opposed to measures. And it, you know, asks the performers to do things like play behind the bridge. It's, it's written for a, a string ensemble or hit their instrument. Um, and it's a really beautiful, although, you know, very disturbing piece of music and something that I, you know, a quote that I saw from him about the composition of the piece itself. He said that it existed only in my imagination in a somewhat abstract way when he wrote it. And then the first time he heard an actual performance, I was struck by the emotional charge of the work. I searched for associations. And in the end, I decided to dedicate it to the Hiroshima victims, which, you know, sounds a lot like how David Lynch creates art uh, without a specific view towards what is this actually going to be about. He has the experience. He translates it into film. Uh, and in this case, you know, the, the composer of this piece decided it was about the victims of Hiroshima after he had already written it and put it together. So I don't know if there's a, a clue there um, for the rest of us, but it's something that struck me and when I was researching that particular piece of music. Yeah, we, we've we got, you know, I don't even know how I can describe in words what we see. Uh, you know, Ken, you did a great job. Is this you, Ken, who kind of walked through all the details yeah, that of these was me changes? on second viewing just this afternoon actually i wanted to try to get it all down as much as i could um typos and and all would go for it you, you're going to be able to translate that better than i can well i don't know that we need to time. get into the details of each individual thing that's going on here it does look like it's a series of a dozen or a dozen and a half kind of short films that lynch made using different techniques and strung together and they're all really remarkable my favorite is this one that has like this kind of ticker tape looking static it's like the kind of tv snow that you might have only a larger rectangle and it's kind of descending from the top of this black field it's clumping up into white clusters at the top of this black field and sort of descending through it and swirling at the same time. And it's it's really, really beautiful in a way that I find both inspiring and, and kind of emotional. I have on my TV right now these sequences uh, next to some stuff by Stan Brockage, uh, which I got the fancy Criterion version. And there's a stunning similarity between a lot of these clips and the experimental films that Brockage was doing. So I'm sure that Lynch knows about that stuff. And I'm sure that he was interested in paying homage to it or just influenced by it in a way that he would describe as unconscious or whatever. There's also a lot of resonance with some of the earlier experimental films that Lynch made. And the Hiroshima parallel is is really spooky to me because I was thinking about, as I was watching this, some of the Alain René films that I watched in college as a film major. I actually did a thesis that I talked about when I was on the very first episode of this show uh, that was about Lost Highway, but it was also about a film called Last Year at Marion that was directed by René and written by Alain Robegrier as about memory and kind of time travel and the ways in which you can put a puzzle together that doesn't ever really have a solution like Lynch does in, in Lost Highway. And it's 
maybe my favorite film of all time. It's it's brilliant and endlessly rewatchable. But Renee's earlier films include Hiroshima Mon Amour and um, something about uh, the Holocaust called Nuit et Puyar, um, Night and Fog. And there are echoes of the filmmaking in both of those films uh, in some of these sequences. And just l- looking at this stuff, uh, which some of which has clouds and fire and smoke and passageways that look as though we're sort of journeying in and through parts of the mushroom cloud of the atomic blast with these little side explosions and things that look like crashing waves but are then revealed to be ink or um, shavings like iron filings being controlled by a magnet something like that um, and uh, yeah I just I, it had a lot of resonance for me with a lot of stuff that I watched uh, years ago and uh, found very moving and very interesting and so yeah it was it was kind of a magical viewing experience for me and as I think we're all going to say unlike anything I've seen <laughs> on American television before yeah you know I mean I, I agree with all of that I I, I obviously was reminded of, of 2001 um, and thought of this as, as an almost an agonistic uh, dispute between David Lynch and Stanley Kubrick, who uh, I know Lynch is a great admirer of Kubrick's films. And, you know, the, this scene is, is like a very dark version of the scene in 2001 where we see the, the birth of the star yeah, child. and certainly when we get to the crag too right when we get to the white lodge tower that has monolith kind of implications to me too especially the way it's shot yeah no i i, I see that um and i also thought of the scene in, in dune where the navigator is folding space uh there I, I think some some parallels in even how the shot how it's filmed um without you know, high grade CGI special effects. Um, that was the case in 1984 with Dune. And it's the case in 2017 with Twin Peaks. Um, so did, did anyone else think that the slowly expanding mushroom cloud uh, at the beginning of the explosion briefly looked a little like the evolved arm electric brain tree? Um, I also uh, thought the, the purple billows of cloud looked somewhat like the ones extending upward toward the good Dale as he fell out of non-existence at the start of episode three. And, and of course, the atomic bomb uh, explosion had to make us all think of uh, the one on Gordon Cole's office wall. I don't know if it's a picture of the same one, but obviously this gigantic mushroom cloud on uh, Gordon's office wall uh, uh, you know, really had some resonance here as you saw the thing actually unfold and going into the cloud itself and going back to lynch's first film eraserhead i think henry has a little picture of an atomic bomb explosion on the wall of his bedroom i think in uh, eraserhead so and i I just want to say this happened (laughs) this aired (laughs) on american television (laughs) in the year of our lord 2017 this, you know, I mean, just the, I don't know, just the miracle that this occurred and that Lynch was able to get the funding and the resources to do this and that it aired in sort of our, I don't know, political, economic, commercial climate. Uh, amazing. I mean, it's amazing. It was an amazing, I, w- I was kind of in awe of this. And the fact that, yeah, we have basically, you know, Kubrick by way of Brockage, by way of I don't even know, <laughs> Renee. Uh, it this this happened. This aired on television. This was amazing. And I does does the uh, Jared? You know if was this the atomic bomb kind of sequence in which we're you know 
I feel like he was also kind of showing up Terrence Malick in the Tree of Life and being like, all right, here's – he said, I think, in an interview at the time Lynch did about Tree of Life that it wasn't his cup of tea. Uh, and I, I sort of feel like this was also his response, not only to Kubrick, but kind of Malick be like, all right, that was obvious what you did in the Tree of Life. Here's something else. Uh, but uh, – I have this- to confess, I haven't seen the Tree of Life. I want to see it. But from what I understand, Lynch may have a slightly less optimistic view of human nature. Yes. And nature itself than, uh, than, than that movie. But again, I haven't which, seen which it. Which of so us does say. a good Lynch as Gordon Cole impression? I demand somebody doing like a, now you think about that, Terrence. But I think the other filmmaker though that is, is here is Tarkovsky and, you know, some of the, some of the work that he did, uh, which, you know, obviously he did not produce in an entirely a commercial context. Yeah, I'm your man on that too. If you want to talk uh, Tarkovsky, I did um, a bunch of papers on Tarkovsky as well, and I have uh, out of print scholarship on Tarkovsky <laughs> um, sitting in front of me. Actually, um, he's he's incredible, and uh, I definitely agree with you on that, Jr. Um, and not for nothing, but uh, there's a giant bell right at the heart of Andre Rublev, which is this brilliant, brilliant Tarkovsky film, right? And a giant bell at the heart of the White Lodge. Well, before we move on to the White Lodge, um, I I just want to mention that. Uh, I, I, I said this on Facebook. I did the research. It, it is a matter of historical fact that when the Manhattan Project began, uh, it, it, there were two parts of it. There was a part in Los Alamos, New Mexico, uh, that was doing the actual production of the bomb itself run by Robert J. Oppenheimer. But there was another production that involved enriching, uh, your plutonium. And that, uh, was run in, uh, Washington in a section of Washington that I, I think may line up with the actual location of Deer Meadow, Washington, but it was on lands that traditionally belonged to the Nez Perce plant, uh, a tribe, which we've talked about previously in this podcast, uh, and which, you know, are referenced extensively in both the access guide to Twin Peaks and as well as the secret history of Twin Peaks. So, so there's some, you know, implication right. that what happened in Trinity involved a you know the extraction of some item or or sin or some some something there may be a connection between the trinity uh, experiment and detonation that we saw in this thing and the actual physical location of twin peaks and uh, the native people that were there you know it, it's interesting because we get this m- myth of uh, owls as sort of skinwalkers uh, that I, I actually quoted from the access guide. Do you remember that? The story of the, 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 the grandmother who was yeah. jealous of her daughter and son-in-law eating the intestines instead of the tough meat that she was given. And so she convinced her, uh, her, her daughter to turn herself into an owl. And then she started sleeping with and eating the entrails with her son-in-law. And then, uh, when the, daughter found out about it. She told the son, the son, son-in-law killed his uh, mother-in-law and then turned into an owl himself. And I wonder if what, what happened here is this sort of local legend mythology of, you know, uh, dark owls that were part of the local mythology became universalized uh, when something from that place was unleashed with the nuclear explosion. And the other thought that I had about the Black Lodge and Mike and Bob 
and the idea of figures that that feed on pain and sorrow. It's interesting that we see these creatures who feed upon pain and sorrow so much, focusing on very small stories, you know, melodramatic stories that involve, you know, the killing and suffering or abuse of one individual. And it actually brought to mind for me the screw tape letters, where a devil is talking about how the quality of sin was much better during like the Middle Ages because the sins were so intense. Whereas they had plenty of sin to go around in modern times, but they were all entirely banal. And it seems to me that that while the 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 Garmin Bosia generated by, you know, what we saw happen to Laura Palmer, what we've seen Bad Coop or Richard Horn do to people is intense and terrible. But gosh, wouldn't you think that these entities would want to hang out like where there's a major war going on, where millions of civilians are being slaughtered through collateral damage or through famine or disease or something like that? And, you know, I, I don't know what it means. I don't know where it goes, but it, it, it did occur to me that, you know, there, there's something there, there's something there. I, I, don't, I don't know why. I don't know why these figures are focused on individual suffering as opposed to mass, you know, scale suffering, pain and sorrow that's out there in the world. But, you know, it's certainly made um, quite uh, imminent by the possibility of, you know, nuclear annihilation. And can I just throw one one unrelated or only vaguely related point here? I, the thing I kept thinking about was uh, with, you know, you hear these stories about things that David Lynch has has done. You know, he asked uh, Jurgen Prochnow in Dune to uh, let him drill a hole in his cheek so they could run the tube through his mouth and make it look more realistic when he spit the gas out at Baron Harkonnen. I mean, they're those types of things that seem pretty extreme. And, you know, we had the, the tweet from David Lynch after... After it was announced that uh, that they were going to be doing Twin Peaks: The Return on Showtime, and then he said it sounded like it was going to to fall apart. There's a part of me that wonders whether David Lynch went to Showtime and said, "We're filming episode eight, and we need an atomic bomb. I need you to provide me an atomic bomb, not like a modern ICBM nuclear warhead. That would be crazy. But get me a garden variety original recipe, Fat Man and Little Boy." A bomb. We'll get it in one take. It'll be cost effective. Let us drop one on New Mexico. And that's the thing that they refused to do and caused him to, uh, to consider pulling out of this project. I mean, doesn't that sound like something David Lynch would do to say, I don't want CGI. I want an yes, actual it does. atomic yeah, bomb. We've established which of us does the best Lynch as Gordon Cole impression. It's definitely Kyle. <laughs> Thank you. I had to add something to this podcast. Yeah. Um, JR, I think the reason why uh, these various spirits and people who prey on Garmin Bosia aren't in war zones is because of Stalin's old quote, right? That one death is a tragedy and a million is a statistic. They got, they got to focus in on the real tragedy. Yeah, no, per- perhaps. I mean, uh, clearly that's their choice. Um, you know, it's funny, Kyle, you know, thinking about uh, David Lynch's filmmaking style. Uh, going back to the Trinity for the Victims of Hiroshima, th- this uh, concept of aleatoric uh, composition or performance, you know, does does remind you of you know David Lynch's right. tendency to take everything on the first take, just see how things go and sure. running with it and moving on, as opposed to trying to you know make it perfect, or in the case of you know music performance, like playing what the notes on the page say. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Right. Right. And Jared, do you know if the 
this atomic bomb explosion sequence, um, does it last for the duration of the entire uh, Pendereki? You know, that's a good question. I don't know. It's uh, the piece was originally called eight minutes, 37 seconds. Yeah. And I was like, I felt like that's roughly the length of this. And I thought I'd read somewhere that it lasted the whole duration of the piece. Yeah. I think that's right because it, it continues going not just through this scene, but also right. through the following scene uh, that we see. And we'll, we'll go ahead and transition to that now, I think, where, uh, it, again, th- I should note that we switched to black and white uh, for the scene of the mushroom cloud exploding. I'm sure that's because the stock footage right. at the time was black and white. Uh, whereas we did see color once we dove into the cloud and had that sort of crazy DMT trip experience of whatever was going on inside of the cloud. And then we, we go to a new scene where there's a building that is conveniently identified as convenience store, uh, because there's a sign on it that says convenience store. A lot of commentators have, uh, posited that this was one of the fake towns in white sands that the army built to see what would happen to uh, buildings in the force of a nuclear explosion. And so we've got, you know, the same music. I think the Threnody continues through the scene. Uh, a cloud shape kind of comes down on the convenience store, um, comes back, re- retracts, it appears again. This happens a couple times. The, the sequence is, is, is sort of jittery and jarry, almost glitchy, like we saw in the space box with Nisdo. Um, there are lights that are flickering on in, in the store. And then all of a sudden a bunch of dirty hobos are just like running around, um, you know, 20, 30, 40 of them outside of the convenience store, not quite there flickering in and out. They're spectral still. They're not, you know, they don't seem to be fully there, but it, that's what we see. Um, these are like the guys who came on Cooper, bad Cooper after he was shot by Ray, these are like the guys that were in the cell with Bill Mitchell uh, or next to Bill Mitchell uh, and the guy that was in the morgue in Buckhorn. It seemed like we're in the same, you know, glitchy version of time that we got, you know, at the beginning of episode three when, right. you know, Cooper's in the space box by the Purple Sea, you know, and all that. But we get the same uh, something's not right with, with, with time in this sequence. Yeah. And can we note too, that there's a staircase, there's an exterior staircase on the right side of the building that's labeled convenience store that leads up to a second floor. There's no second floor windows, but it looks like you could take that second floor staircase. If you were going to live above it, the convenience store. Oh, <laughs> is that, does that make you think of anything? Is that a, a evoke a, yes. a reference in your mind, Ken? I mean it like it is, like it sounds. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> we lived among the people. I think you say convenience store. We lived above it. And we go from this scene to uh, a floating creature that looks a lot like the creature that we saw in the glass box. And it expels a, a column of fluid and bulbous things from its face, which include spotted egg little things many of them as well as a bubble that has the face of bob the actress who apparently played this figure that expelled a bunch of stuff from its face and looks like the spectral figure in the box from episode one is played by the same actress who was credited in episode one as playing experiment model 
in this episode, she's credited just as experiment. So it's it whatever we saw in episode one is clearly related to this thing we're seeing in episode eight, if not the same thing. And you know, we've also noted that a lot of people have identified that this thing looks a lot like the card that Bad Coop had that he showed Daria about what he's really looking for. And I also noted that this this uh, this figure. Uh, looks kind of an up like an upside down um, stage three navigator from Dune. Yeah, and I, if this thing gave birth in this uh, Zeus Athena kind of way to Bob, and it's now back, like it's in our reality through the glass box to track down what it spewed out of its face in 1945. Like that's that's some really terrifying shit right there. Right, and I, I also right. took this yeah as some. Uh, if not the same, what is it? What, what the, it was an experiment in this episode. And what was the creature in the glass box credited as experiment model experiment model? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I took them in yeah, as if not the same creature <laughs> related to each other. And I don't know I'd also like to point out that there are, I think, uh, let me see. I'll look this up. There are some, you know, central African, uh, I think it's the Kuba have a creation myth in which a giant pale god, Mabombo, uh, vomits up uh, basically the sun, moon, and stars into existence. So that was floating around in my head from some anthropology class or something I took long ago. But there was, yeah, there are like this idea of vomiting up uh, creation ties into some cultures' uh, creation myths. Yeah. Isn't that how uh, owls work too? Isn't there a lot of vomiting involved with owls? Or, Or am I just thinking of Jacques Renault? Birds are constantly throwing stuff <laughs> yeah. up. Birds are always Birds, throwing stuff Renos. up right? for their kids. Like that's yeah, yeah. Well, let's throw their nose out. They did interbreed with owls, so yeah. they, they have some <laughs> vestigial throwing up. Young, young, young Jean and Jacques, uh, their mother would throw up their meals to them. <laughs> that whole thing you were telling about the skinwalker and the intestine meat. All I could think of is this is how you get Renos. That's that's you know, yeah. Yeah, well, so is, is it time for – well, no, I guess before we, we move on to Ken's Beverage Corner, Kyle and Ken, I know you guys have both uh, enjoyed the at That's Our Waldo uh, Twitter user's reminder that in 1989, Coop asked the unchemically cloaked Philip Gerard, is Bob near us now? And uh, Philip Gerard or, or Mike responded for nearly 40 years. So there you go, 1956. Uh, 2017. We should really give Lynch and Frost a lot of credit for fan service here. I know Kyle used the uh, ridiculous word linear earlier, and I'm gonna I'm gonna forgive him for doing that. But um, the uh, the the way in which this episode dropped uh, parallels and resonances and hints and such that uh, make people think of the secret history and the missing pieces and everything is really great. You know, in the midst of something that doesn't have a lot of linear structure, there's all these references to things we saw before. Like uh, Lynch thought, well, I'm going to do this really, really avant-garde thing for the birth of Bob, but it all seems to fit into a mythology that's been laid out in a bunch of different Twin Peaks materials over And that's really cool for the bevy of us that do podcasts, you know, the, the 1900 of us who have podcasts, 19 people who listen to them. So, since we're talking about mushroom clouds and atomic tests, I should point out that there was a time in American history when atomic tests were actually spectator sports. You could go to Nevada and you could see 
the Nevada test site, which was right outside of Las Vegas, and you could watch these explosions go off and feel the shockwaves from the comfort of a bar, both the legend up the legendary Atomic Liquors in Las Vegas, one of my favorite bars in America, and the one that has Nevada license number one and is still in operation. You could, for example, sip an atomic cocktail, a drink that I have in front of me right now and am enjoying, which is made from vodka, brandy, sherry, and champagne, and which was invented in the 50s so that people in the Nevada could have could have something topical to drink while they were literally watching the It's Terror. It's very and very, very key and very, very true. Um, I love this drink. I was introduced to it by David Wondrich, who's a brilliant writer for Esquire magazine and who has written a bunch of books. In one of his books, he has a photo of the atomic cocktail garnished with a plastic version of the three-eyed fish, uh, Blinky from The Simpsons, which I find really delightful. And I did a piece on the cocktail a few years back where uh, I learned how to flash things, fuse things. So in celebration of a nuclear fusion deal between the US and Iran, where our scientists would work together with theirs to figure out cold fusion, I learned how to infuse vodka with fennel and how to infuse uh, brandy with apples right on the spot and made up a nuclear fusion version of the atomic cocktail. So for people who are interested, I will post that on Facebook and on uh, perhaps the Repton Podcast Twitter feed. This has been Ken's Beverage Corner. Okay, thanks for that, Ken. And I just gonna say, I'm um, impressed because I thought the only beverage I saw at work in this episode was, I thought you were going to do something like doppelganger blood <laughs> cocktail, like infused with like hobo charcoal so, or something like that. That was the only possible beverage I saw in this episode. So I'm, I'm, I'm impressed that Ken's Beverage Corner was able to, to pull through and avoid that, that cocktail, which might bring you back to life, well, you know, but uh, probably at the cost, some sort of. I was afraid cost. he was going to do something with with absinthe to make a, yeah. a locust yeah. frog I mean, beverage. Yeah, I mean, there is a cocktail called the Blood and Sand, and there's an awful lot of blood and sand in this episode, and it's a great cocktail. And there's zombie, and we obviously have who coming back dead. So weirdly, this was a very fruitful episode for possible Ken's beverage corners. I think you're going to have to create a new cocktail called the Hobo Midwife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, uh, we, we move from here to a scene of a vast violet sea, uh, which, you know, sure seems like it would be the same vast violet sea that we saw spreading out in front of Coop when he landed in wherever he landed, uh, in the place that we've been calling on this, uh, podcast, the space box. Um, and in the, in the, in, within that sea, there's a crag, uh, you know, a, 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 a stone mountain or tiny mountain spindling up into the air. And at the very top is a building. It looks like some sort of uh, Guggenheim uh, designed uh, buildings, like some sort of observatory. Uh, uh, and we there's a tiny rectangular window that's uh, uh, much taller than it is wise, wide. And we, we sort of slowly zoom into that window and into the building in a scene that reminded me very much of the scene in Dune. Uh, guess what? I watched most of Dune last night. Uh, <laughs> where where um, the Duke Leto and the folks from Caledon are going to travel to Arrakis and their ships, who were, which already seem to be enormous, uh, pile into this huge, enormous spacing guild ship. 
uh, uh, through a door. It's much more ornate here, but it's got kind of the same dimensions in the side of the, of the, of the ship. And then we get this scene of folding space by the navigator that I said already looks like what we saw earlier. And then the spacing guild ship just appears at Arrakis. Um, so we, we come to black and then, uh, we're now in a room with this sort of like heavily saturated black and white scene, uh, like we saw with the artist formerly known as the giant talking to Coop at the very beginning of the first episode. Um, it's, it's, it's not just black and white, if that makes any sense. It's uh it's like a sepia toned black and white, if that makes any sense in it itself. There's a, a lady on an ornate divan. Um, there's a, a Victor- Victrola plane to uh, jazz music of the early 20th century, early 20th century. Um, she's wearing kind of a, almost like a flapper kind of dress, but maybe even fancier. And we see a giant bell-shaped metal structure, the same thing that we saw at the top of the space box in episode three. Um, though I don't know if that one was black. I thought that one was more of kind of a metallic silver color, if I recall correctly. I think so. Uh, and, of course, that one had a lever on it, which we don't see uh, any levers on on this one. Yeah. Can we just, right. before we talk about this room too much, JR, can we just talk about the crag? So the crag looks a lot like a monument to the actual Trini, Trinity nuclear test. So there's a Trinity monument at White Sands where they did that test uh, that is very similar in shape to the crag. That's something we have uh, Twitter to thank for, but um, that's from an account called at Peaks World Of, but I thought that was important to mention. Sure. Yeah, and so this this woman character, um, she's credited as Senorita Dido, um, and cu- a couple things I thought about that. First, Senorita Dido immediately made me think of Senor Drool Cup, oh, yeah. uh, which was the appellation that Albert had for yeah. the giant's um, you know persona in in the real world, the 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 tall friendly waiter. Um, who was the immediate witness to the aftermath of uh, Coop being shot. Um, he was referred to as Senior Drool Cup. Here we have Senorita Dido. Now, Dido, of course, you know, leaving aside the, the pop artist, is the name of the Queen of Carthage, made famous, or the mythological Queen of Carthage, made famous in uh, Virgil's epic poem, The Aeneid. Uh, Dido was the Queen of Carthage, where Aeneas, the hero of the story, um, shacks up for a while after escaping the fall of Troy with his father Priam. Uh, and she falls in love with Aeneas, and Aeneas, I think, fancies her, but eventually realizes that he's got to go and found the city of Rome and leave Carthage. And Dido issues a curse on Aeneas and the Roman people, saying that they will salt their fields and, you know, destroy everything that they have, um, out of her rage for being wronged by Aeneas. And of course, ultimately Carthage did very well against the Romans um, in the Republic period, but uh, by Hannibal, but ultimately were uh, completely annihilated by Rome who did in fact salt their fields. So I don't know where that plays in, but that's certainly what I thought about when there's a character named Dido. See, and and when I saw that, because this is the point in my notes where I started drawing uh, ladders and stairs with a pencil, uh, I would just say with there being a character named Dido that there is a white flag (laughs) above my door, I throw my hands up and surrender. Yeah, I mean, where's Eminem? 
I guess Eminem is is uh, the giant um, wearing like a smoking jacket. Um, there, there's an alarm comes off. Uh, the lights are flashing on the bell, and uh, there, there's a signal flash, and the noise uh, it, it rings from the bell exactly 62 times. And we can credit Ken Wall's ex-wife for counting those times that the noise was made. Thanks, Adrian. Uh, the giant, where where the scenery to Dido appears, you know, fairly uh, nonplussed by what's going on here. But the the giant does appear. He moves slowly um, as ever, but uh, does press a button which stops the noise, and the giant slowly climbs a staircase. We're still in a black and white space um and climbs the staircase you know very slowly this is a classic david lynch scene of somebody doing something normal very slowly uh and then he gets to the top and he gets into a a theater and i've heard that this is apparently the tower theater in los angeles where the sort of climax scene in mulholland drive was seen was was also filmed but there are no seats in the in the room but there is another one of these black bells Although it doesn't appear to do anything uh, for the rest of this episode. Yeah. Uh, instead, the giant walks to a screen, holds up his hand, and we get to sort of see highlights of what we've already seen. I mean, it's it's, it's pretty cool. What? Like, <laughs> what what are the important things to pick out from what we just saw? Well, now we know because we get a sort of fast forward, um, you know, fifteen second summary version that the giant sees. Um, the focus does seem to be on Bob, but we also see the nuclear test, the convenience stores, the the army of hobos, um, and the experiment vomiting, and then the focus in under the uh, placental Bob head that we saw coming out of what the uh, experiment was expelling. Yeah, and I think in this gallery scene, wants us to think wants us to think of the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul because he tweeted a photo of that uh, as people were asking him about the uh, episode, and it's a black and white photo in which there are some very similar structural and architectural features to the theater that we see. Yeah, and I also saw people uh, showing pictures of the carpet in the room, which apparently looked like the surface surface of Jupiter. Huh. Did any of you guys see that? It's it's pretty cool. Um, the scenery to the, oh, before next, the giant sort of steps forward, stops and starts to ascend into the air. And I thought he was going into like a, a balcony or something, but as he, as he starts to fly into float into the air, scenery to Dido comes into the gallery. Um, and she is there as the giant starts to, float into a supine position in the air and we see gold stars for lack of a better word start to emanate from his head uh into a shape that that i thought actually looked like a like a uterus and fallopian tubes um and they they gradually coalesce into a ball the woman is senorita dita dido is watching uh and those stars coalesce into a sphere and the sphere floats down into the hands of Senorita Dido. And who do we see in the sphere, but the face of Laura Palmer, um, twin peaks, prom queen, uh, literally her prom queen picture. It looks like the woman. And it's also 
the image which all the credit sequences for the entire Twin Peaks return had more or less yeah. you know right. started yeah. with. So she kisses the ball, and it floats into the air into a kind of st- st- steampunky contraption with a bunch of gears and a tube, like a horn, almost shaped thing that sort of sucks up the ball and then the tube moves and then sort of shoots the ball into the air. And we see this like uh, kind of crude animated black and white picture of the earth, uh, almost like in a cartoon. And it seemed like a 1950s era, yeah. you know, kind of like news of the world. Like quality yeah. image. There's something of, very uh, uterine right. about the, right. um, or very right. fallopian tubish about that ball going into the golden horn thing too. So I see what you're seeing there, JR, but I wanted to give Kyle some, yeah, uh, I wanted to give Kyle some credit too because I, I was backing him up on the sort of branching tree structures in the mushroom cloud itself earlier, and then I saw them again in the gold emanation from the head of the giant, paralleling this sort of milky white emanation from the head of the experiment that we saw Bob in. So I've I've seen those trees and branching structures throughout the um, episode, just just as Kyle did. So yeah, I I got uh, very much the the Laura Palmer emerging from the head of the giant like Athena from the head of Zeus, and and the the sort of juxtaposition of the giant sees that Bob has been unleashed upon the world, and so he releases Laura to go into the world. I mean, there's a very strong vibe of for the giant soul of the world that he sent his only begotten daughter type of thing to it. Uh, and, and the thing that I wondered was whether there was any connection between these orbs with Bob and Laura through which they were released into the world and the tiny ball bearings into which the manufactured Dougie Jones and the Buenos Aires box that I believe is Philip Jeffries were reduced. It's almost like we have these orbs opening up and flowering and going out into the world to do things, and then when they are taken out from the world, they're then crushed down into these little ball bearings or marbles or whatever they are. And then the other thing I thought of was the machinery. You know, there's a there's a moment in the premiere where when Tracy finally gets into the glass box room with Sam and, and they're He's describing what it is. You see a little bit of the machinery underlying the the glass box just for a second, and and this machinery looked like that to me. Yeah, I remember from that that scene a bunch of like computer equipment. It looked like a bunch of servers and stuff. But I have to go back and see because I don't remember like gears and things underneath the box. And and that was, was completely the impression I got watching it. So I mean, it, I, it may be completely wrong. I was going to say, in response to Kyle, I sort of feel like these orbs, you know, in relationship to the little, you know, the the ball that Dougie's reduced to, or maybe the Philip Jeffries ball, um, or orb, whatever you want to call it, maybe the same relationship, like, you know, a, 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 a normal human to like a golem, or like a god to a demiurge or something yeah. like that. Yeah, that was, that was kind of the way I took that. And I was just, I don't know, I yeah. thought this sequence was beautiful. It was. Uh, and I, yeah. I rarely, you know, do we, I, I feel like the, the artist formerly known as the giant, um, is really one of the most purely, I guess, benevolent representatives of the lodges that we've seen. Right. I thought this is just a gorgeous, wordless, uh, sequence. It, I don't know. It felt intuitively right. That's the only way. I, it's hard to talk about these sequences because they're wordless and they, I think, primarily work with on you on a visual level and an unconscious level. And I, don't, I just thought it was beautiful. Yeah. 
the sight of him kind of, you know, levitating in the air and, you know, that thing, it, it was, I loved it. Yeah. That's yeah, all. It does that thing where you have this brilliant shining copper gold orb coming out of this brilliant shining copper gold array of, uh, like stardust coming out of the giant against this beautiful high contrast black and white background, which, you know, reminds of like, I don't know, the, the red being used very briefly in Schindler's List and stuff like that, right? It's, it's a, it's a trick that, um, prestige films use a lot, but it's extremely effective. And great. So we jump from 1945 to 1956. Uh, this is, uh, it's now August 5th. We're in the New Mexico desert and, uh, you know, I am, I want to know why this point in time, we obviously know why 1945, because that's when the Trinity explosion happened. Um, Jeff, I'm wondering if this might be a good time for you to share your insights from the secret history. Uh, I will, but I was going to say about this particular date, I did a lot of research and I couldn't find almost anything of any significance that occurred on August 5th, 1956. And my one theory was that it perhaps had to do with something astronomical slash astrological. And I was like, maybe this was like the date when, you know, Jupiter and Jupiter and Saturn are conjunct and like, you know, there's an opening to the lodge, you know, in the same way that uh, happens with Glastonbury Grove near the end of, of season two. I could, I even looked at the ephemeris for 1956. No, there was uh, apparently no Jupiter Saturn conjunction. So right now it is unknown. Uh, but in terms of, the secret history, I guess briefly, I mean, I'm going to summarize like a large, uh, you know, part of the book, uh, but we do find out that Dougie Milford, future mayor of Twin Peaks, uh, was reassigned uh, to the White Sands, uh, I guess, Air Force Base around the time of, uh, it looked like a little bit after like the 1945, the, but around the time of the Trinity, Trinity uh you know, tests. And he was involved with, it seems like early, uh, version of kind of project blue book, uh, was present at the Roswell incident. And, you know, there's kind of this like really clever kind of masterful interweaving of like the history of the UFO phenomenon and connecting it back to twin peaks and certain characters, uh, throughout the kind of dossier format of the secret history, and perhaps, I guess, most interestingly, um, after the kind of Dougie Milford bit and uh, his description of, uh, you know, everything from the Roswell crash uh, to sort of reverse engineered UFO technology uh, that the U.S. government got out of that uh, to also, I think, some of the first UFO encounters, uh, we get this long sequence about Jack Parsons, uh, who was... Um, I guess Milford sort of investigates him at the behest of Richard Nixon. I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, this is on the secret history. Uh, but Jack Parsons was uh, really one of the people who invented jet propulsion, uh, you know, rocketry, uh, and also was involved in uh, black magic, uh, thalamic magic uh, derived from Aleister Crowley. And looked at kind of both these things as uh, the same side of the same coin. But I think where it kind of interestingly connects with this particular episode, um, around the same time, like 1945, 46, 47, I mean, the development of, of some of the, the, uh, the jet propulsion technology, rocket technology um, that Parsons was 
working on led directly to kind of nuclear capability for the U.S. But then around the same time, uh, kind of following uh, some of Crowley's rec- – Aleister Crowley, you know, the famous uh, occultist uh, recommendations, Jack Parsons was conducting a series of experiments, um, I think, in – real life they were mostly in kind of southern california in the desert there in the secret history of twin peaks they moved that over to the new mexico desert uh, specifically but the purpose of these um i think they were called the babylon workings which interestingly enough uh parsons was performing with l ron hubbard uh who is good friends with parsons and the future founder of scientology uh, but they were doing these rituals to basically bring about, I think, the birth of the moon child, some version of the Antichrist. And, uh, you know, depending on what source you you uh, read, they had varying degrees of success with this. But they were basically out in the desert trying to summon up uh, the, either the, the whore of Babylon, some sort of Antichrist figure, something like that. And, you know, uh, who knows what exactly happened? But uh, some people say something happened and that this, you know, which interestingly, this magic combining with uh, what Parsons was working on at his day job, uh, some people said led to some tearing uh, uh, between the worlds and allowed, you know, intercourse between two worlds in terms of uh, some sorts of spirits that before, you know, could not have access uh, to uh, the physical world had access to it and Parsons himself died uh, in a mysterious explosion about six years after this uh, in 1952. And in the secret history of twin peaks, there's a great kind of uh, scene where I think Milford goes undercover to one of the black magic, you know, kind of things at um, uh, Parsons house in Pasadena. And you even get um, Parsons wearing the owl cave ring, the ring, uh, the owl cave ring, but on his right ring finger, not his spiritual finger. Uh, Kyle, make of that what you will. Yes. Uh, and he also says part of the fire walk with me poem, uh, magician, I think, uh, I can't remember what part, but strange, uh, history. And if there's a secret history of the 20th century, Parson seems right at the middle of it, uh, as probably does L. Ron Hubbard, but that's, you know, probably too long, but uh, an encapsulation of kind of about 100 pages of the secret history that seems to correct uh, connect directly That's to great. this episode. It sounds like uh, Jack Parsons was out there doing an experiment in the desert. And also, he did show up, as I think I pointed out, on the wall uh, of the casino manager's office in, right. I think, episode yeah. three. Yeah. So Brett Gelman's office, yeah. Um, can we call that Jeff's epiphenomenology corner for this uh, for this episode? That was, that was really great. Um, and I think it, it plays into a thing I wanted to do about SETI. Can I do my SETI sure. thing, Jar? So I pulled out some of the same stuff from the secret history about uh, Roswell and Project Sign and Project Grudge and Project Blue Book, all of which were involved with uh, Doug Milford. So uh, as, as Jeff pointed out, of course, so another Dougie, right? But uh, I also was watching Ancient Aliens this week, as I do religiously. And there was some talk, as there often is, about SETI and about the wow signal, which I thought was really interesting um, because it had some associations with this uh, episode. So, uh, in on August 15th of 1977, a SETI radio telescope picked up a strong narrowband signal from the constellation Sagittarius bearing hallmarks of extraterrestrial origin and lasting 72 seconds. The radio telescope was at Ohio State, and it was called the 
ear, and the person who was monitoring the telescope wrote wow in the margin of the printout, and it remains the strongest candidate for an extraterrestrial radio transmission ever detected. So um, there's there's this notion still that uh, the Sagittarians were sending us a message in 1977, though we haven't been able to duplicate it, and recent theories suggest that it was actually being reflected um, at us from that location, but... Either way, very strong radio signals suggesting it was coming from an artificial source. And what I thought was interesting in researching the wow signal was that the Big Ear telescope featured two feed horns, each receiving a beam from different directions, which sounded a little bit to me like the golden horns in the White Lodge that were obviously receiving the golden orb with Laura Palmer's face on it. So I wanted to mention the wow bob. Wow, signal. So is that the Ohio State University, like the Nine Inch Nails? Exactly. The Ohio State Go ba- University. Okay. Go Buckeyes. Well, so as, so as not to be left out of, of the discussion altogether, let me try and throw out a, uh, a 70s conspiracy theory, and this one's an even bigger stretch than most of them. But, JR, you asked about the significance of the date, August 5th, 1956. August 5th, 1956 is the day that Maureen McCormick was born in Encino, California. Uh, Maureen McCormick, of course, became famous to American television viewers as Marsha Brady on The Brady Bunch, the oldest of the three Carol Brady daughters, the blonde, perky, popular, beloved character from television, uh, who we later learned from her autobiography was behind the scenes, uh, addicted to cocaine and quaaludes, suffered from bouts of depression and bulimia. Uh, she admits to at various points having traded sex for drugs and had a couple of abortions secretly in her early 20s. So uh, not hard to see a connection between Maureen McCormick and Laura Palmer, who of course was outwardly the beloved, popular, blonde prom queen, who also was you know, a drug addict and a prostitute at One-Eyed Jacks. That's all I got. Just for a weekend, as far as we know, <laughs> at least as far as One-Eyed Jacks is concerned. That's a pretty good return to Kyle's 70s conspiracy. Yeah, I, I, think, that's, I, I think that's I think that's excellent. I yes. think that's excellent. Um, okay, so 1956, we're in this desert landscape. There's this like very, before we get to the scene that I was about to talk about, there's an egg. We see a, a sort of speckled egg in the desert. It cracks open like a bird egg. But we don't see a bird come out of it. Instead, we see what looks mostly like an insect, somewhere between a cockroach and a moth in terms of the head and thorax of the body. But it's got amphibian-like legs, and it takes itself out of the egg, its wings flutter, and it starts to crawl across the floor. Kyle, you noted that it crawls across the desert kind of like Bob creaking over the back of the Palmer's couch, which is a vision that I think... Um, uh, that was Maddie who who had that vision, right? Right, right. And I have to give credit. My wife's the one who actually, while we were watching it, pointed that out, that it that's what it looked like to her. JR, didn't you find something interesting from the access guide to Twin Peaks about this? Isn't this your, your access guide? That actually, uh, corner? I think Ken picked that up. Somebody else pulled off of, off of, uh, off of Twitter. Do you have that at hand, Ken? There, there's something about uh, fly, flying frogs all over a woman's body in the middle of an ocean of a lake 
Yeah, it's 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 from the Access Guide. Twitter does get all the credit, um, and it says Chinook legends describe the appearance long ago of an ancestress of the Frog Clan. They tell of a house floating in the middle of a lake. On the house sits a woman, her knees, breasts, eyebrows, and the backs of her hands covered with flying frogs. Ever since that time, the flying frog has been viewed as a special crest. And there is an image of a creepy, totem-like flying frog next to it. Yeah, it's, it's astounding to me that there may actually be connections between this show and the access guide. I would have never, ever predicted that. Yeah, it's astounding. The, the fan service is so strong in this episode. Yeah, it's amazing. Right. So, and also to your, the comment that uh, your wife originally made, uh, Kyle, obviously later on in the, in the episode, we're going to see this same insect crawling through a window of a young girl, yeah. much the same way we saw right. Bob uh, terrifyingly crawl through Laura Palmer's window in Firewalk with Me. Uh, but to a uh, slightly less uh, bleak and terrifying scene, we've got a, Let's see. No, actually, never mind. We're going to have some more terror. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm get, getting a little Slightly lost here because there's the couple. There's the young young couple in love walking along, and this is interspersed with you know uh, terrifying woodsman creatures coming down from the sky. But first, we see the couple, uh, a sort of young mid-teen um, boy and girl, uh, in this very classically 50s scene um in in if you think about the way that the 70s kind of mythologized the 50s in films like american graffiti and tv shows like happy days like this like it, th- this is like 70s uh mythology of the 50s on heroin it's like it's like so intense and so perfect and so sweet you know and so nice we see this couple um they're coming out of a convenience store it, it, they were, she really liked that song, uh, apparently coming out of, of the convenience store. And she finds a penny, picks it up, and, uh, it's, it's heads up, and she says, that's good luck, which maybe it is. I don't know. We'll hear from Red on that subject later. Then we shift to the desert and we see a, a two figures, um, shuffle down from the sky. They're basically like shadows. They appear and start shuffling faceless, uh, and then we have a scene with an older couple driving down the road. And I didn't know. I thought this was maybe going to be the couple we saw earlier, but it's not. And uh, as they're driving, a shadow figure crosses the street and they stop. And we hear this very extreme electric buzzing. And then this Abraham Lincoln impersonator comes up to the door and says, got a light, got a light, got a light. And it's terrifying. Um, it's really, really intense. Um, and then another figure seems to be coming up on the windshield and, and somehow this couple after immediately freezing, um, when presented by this terrifying scene, you know, they hit the gas and they, they drive away and, you know, God, I mean, the whole time you're watching this, you're just like, Oh my God, they're going to do something to that boy and girl. Like something so awful is going to happen to them. Uh, I thought the couple was in their headlong flight away from the woodsman. I thought they were going to run over. I'm like Richard. <laughs> That's what I seriously. I thought they were at least one of them. Maybe the girl, maybe the guy, but one of them was going to get run down by the the fleeing couple. That's what I was afraid of. And then, of course, something even worse happened. I've got like two things about this. I mean, one is just this whole kind of 
sequence, this 1956 New Mexico sequence, just sort of seemed like, you know, Lynch's version of like, you know, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers or something, or like a oh, classic yeah. 50s kind of like sci-fi horror film. Uh, and I agree with you, like the the interiors and the kind of props of these 50 scenes seem so lovingly chosen, you know, and like authentic. It didn't seem like someone in their 20s, like a production designer being like, all right, we'll take that 50 stuff. But it, it almost felt like, you know, hand chosen by Lynch. You know what I mean? Like uh, the, the the diner and some of the interiors later on. But um, and the other thing was this kind of scene of the uh, the couple in the car late at night encountering this strange extra dimensional being. This seems like, you know, uh, a, a classic UFO encounter from the era, you know, which was having they were happening all the time from like 1947 uh, through the late fifties, but it had that, that vibe too. That's, uh, my epiphenomenology, epiphenomenology corner part two. Thanks. Part two. Yeah. This peak time for ufology in America. Right. So they, uh, the couple is the woman, the, the young woman is too shy for a kiss, but eventually relents, gives the boy one kiss and it's all gee golly gosh. And the girl goes into the house, the boy walks away and then we're in the, the desert and we see the Abraham Lincoln woodsman uh, shuffling towards a tower, a radio tower, an antenna. And it turns out it's KPJK radio station. Um, he comes in and the song that's playing is uh, My Prayer by the Platters. A couple people pointed out, I'll credit Jeff Jensen for identifying that one of the original members of the Platters was named David Lynch. This totally blew my mind. Yes. I wasn't familiar with the song, but hearing the lyrics, it starts out by saying, when the twilight is gone and no songbirds are singing. And, and that, of course, made me think of the little man from another place, uh, another place in Cooper's dream. And, and I'm not, I'm not for a minute thinking that, that David Lynch did this on purpose, but I can't help noticing that the call letters of the radio station, KPJK, Ken Parker, Jeff Kyle. It's it's the it's the summary of the cast of this podcast. Yeah. No. He went forward in time to to meet us, and then back in time to 1956 to name a radio station after us. It's brilliant. I don't want to work at this radio station. <laughs> yeah. They were playing some good jams until the woodsman showed up yeah. and ruined everything. Yeah. I'm qualified. I was a music director for three years of a of a thousand fifty watt radio station. Sign me up, just not for the head squishing part. Right. Um. So the the girl is in her bed. She's listening to the same radio station, as well as other people in the town. A mechanic fixing a car, a diner waitress, you know, cleaning up in a diner that's I think it's literally called Pop's Diner. The, the record is playing all over the place. And uh, so the, the woodsman, the Abraham Lincoln guy, comes in, says, got a light, got a light, and then crushes the head of the secretary who uh, he meets in the kind of lobby area of the radio station. There's a lot of gore and blood splattering on the floor as he proceeds to crush her head with one hand. Uh, and then he goes in to see the DJ and does the same thing. He does say, got a light a couple times and the dj has no idea what's going on but is terrified and he proceeds to put his hand on her on him the dj the the abraham lincoln guy does and then the record scratches off and now the woodsman uh, begins his you know poetry slam this is the water and this is the well drink full and descend the horse is the white of the eyes and dark within 
this is the water and this is the well over and over again with different kind of inflections. So yeah, white horse. We talked about this back in like episode zero or negative one. Uh, we're like, right. Oh, it's drugs. And we're like, Oh, it's just means killing somebody. Right. <laughs> uh, might, might, I mean, think it still definitely involves killing. Um, and I think that that was definitely. confirmed by uh, Margaret, the log lady, uh, in a, I think she said, if you see the pale horse, you know, you're, you're going to die or something like that. Can I go ahead? Can I read that? Cause it, cause that's the intro, the log lady intro to episode 14. Uh, and it's in the form of a poem. So I, I, I found it and it's a, a poem as lovely as a tree as the night wind blows, uh, the boughs move to and fro the rustling, the magic rustling that brings on the dark dream, the dream of suffering and pain. Pain for the victim, pain for the inflictor of pain, a circle of pain, a circle of suffering. Woe to the ones who behold the pale horse. Yeah. I mean, you really can't say that. Or just hear a poem about it. Right. I mean, I I don't think you can make the argument that this is just a bunch of crap thrown together, uh, this episode. Not at all. It it really shows the hallmark of of Mark Frost and his ability to plot and pull together the pieces and advance the plot and slowly reveal to some extent what's going on, not in the hurry up and reveal who Laura's Palm Laura Palmer's killer is and let's get it done with. Cause he didn't want to do that either. It also, also involves, you know, David Lynch's mastery of, of, you know, putting a picture on the screen that comes out of his dreams. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, I, and I agree. I thought this was just a really beautiful marriage of both those things. Cause you're right on some level, it's like, as much mythology and kind of backstory world building, you know, to use all those kind of decoder TV terms that have been in use lately, along with, as you said, Lynch's kind of use of imagery and sound to do something in a way that resonates on kind of some of the deepest levels of abstraction and unconscious awareness, but it kind of does it both at the same time. And uh, it was great and strange. Yeah. And this poem, I mean, so I, I want to do like a new critical kind of reading of this poem, but I also don't want to at all. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, the bug creature with the frog legs uh, hears, seems to look up at the girl's window when it hears the poem. Surely it was because he was he was doing the poem over and over right. and over Kept- again. And, and just to make sure I'm I'm clear. Are, are we all on the same page that this ties the woodsman from Fire Walk With Me into sooty, skinny Santa Claus from the Buckhorn Jail and tall, dark, and chunky from the Buckhorn Morgue and the Gettysburg paramedics who saved Doppel Cooper and or these guys? Well, I, I tried to address that, I think, at the beginning of the podcast, Kyle. Um, okay. Uh, where okay. I, I think that it is not a mistake that that guy is called the woodsman. Uh, woodsman one and two and, and woodsman in this episode, he seems to be of the same sort of class or nature as the army of dirty hobos that are out there, but perhaps, you know, is unique in some way in as much as he's on the radio and reciting poems, as opposed to just, you know, being a, uh, midwife of a a disgusting Bob thing. I, I don't know. It's All getting right. late. J- just making sure. Carry on. Carry um, on. Okay. So the so the last thing that we see is, or among the last things that we see are this, the, in the town, the waitress, the mechanic seem to fall to the ground upon the recitation of the poem. 
Are they falling asleep? Are they dying? It's not clear. The girl, however, who had previously been walking with the boy, who is on her bed listening to the radio, seems to fall asleep when she starts hearing the poem. And at that same point in time, our friendly neighborhood frog bug uh, proceeds to fly through her window, which, as I mentioned before, evokes Bob crawling through Laura Palmer's window, lands on her bed in front of her face. It seems to kind of um, flick his wings or flitter his wings in such a way that it triggers a response in the girl to open her mouth quite wide, and he proceeds to crawl inside of her mouth. Uh, yeah, yeah, yuck! It was rough. Not, not really fun. The woodsman has finished squeezing the DJ's head. Um, you know, he keeps doing it for some period of time while he recites the poem. He can definitely is, 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 is very good at doing two things at the same time. And so he, uh, walks out of the radio station, disappears into the dark night, and we hear the sound of a horse neighing and credits. There we go, everybody. Episode eight. (sighs) Okay. Uh, I, it's it's getting late uh, and long, but do do we have any final thoughts before we tie this up? Well, I think we have to. I have to ask you guys to speculate: Is the frog bug Bob? Or is it Laura? Is it something? Is it some something else? And then uh, the couple we see at the end. Who do you guys think this was? I think kind of most people have speculated. Perhaps Sarah Palmer. Um, I've also seen people say, you know, Cooper's uh, mother. Uh, and father could also be, uh, interestingly, uh, Betty Briggs. I saw it was like a, a possible candidate for this. Thoughts on this, anyone? Yeah, I don't think any of the dates line up. I don't think anybody would be the right age. Yeah, I think that's right. It definitely doesn't work for Sarah Palmer because she'd be 10 at the time, I think. Right. I don't know. I don't know that we're ever going to find out I've that before. And then we do find out that it, that it may be some kind of allegory. Again, it goes back to like, why at this particular point in time? Um, what, what's going on in, in 1956? And uh, I just, I, I can't see it. I mean, clearly, you know, and, and what is the explanation for the delay between the Trinity explosion, which appeared to have spawned or drawn these dirty hobos to the convenience store at that point in time. And then the production of the egg, you know, why is there an 11 year delay from when the egg hatches and the convenience store now right. apparently cleared of spectral hobos uh, that you can see or, or, or know about instead they're, they're descending, you know, a, a handful of them rather than an army of them are descending from the sky to crush random radio store, radio station employees heads. I don't know. Can't make any sense out of that. I don't think we know yet, but I think we will find out. I don't see this as just some like removed allegorical parable. Uh, I feel like we're going to find out who these characters are, but maybe not. I don't know, but I still, I don't know. I I, I feel like there will be some connection. It it might just not happen until uh, early September. Yeah. (laughs) Whenever this ends, that it becomes clear. Yeah. Yeah. On the final thoughts tip, I know I've talked a a lot in this episode, and I apologize for for doing that. I just I've been riding this sort of high for like seventy two hours now, where this was so inspirational and made me feel so creative and energized f- since it aired that it's just been incredible to have experienced. And I think, as we've all said, it's it's one of the most remarkable things, one of the most certainly ambitious things that's ever aired on American television. It's really really incredible, and it made me think 
about my reaction to the series as a whole, because I've been sort of the voice of doubt on this uh, podcast so far, and I've been critical of the way in which it was progressing and the darkness and the pace of it. And I had thought that what I wanted was something closer to the soap opera elements or the narrative structure of the original Twin Peaks series, and that what I'd wanted was something more plot-heavy and plot-driven. I used to have this joke all the time when I watched all these experimental films and things in college, when people would ask me how I could watch something that wasn't plot driven, I would say, oh, plot is so bourgeois, right? Um, and the joke there was that, you know, uh, people who were very evolved and uh, socially uh, progressive thinkers didn't have to watch things that were plot heavy, though there was really this this idea amongst the early Russian filmmakers that plot and narrative and even sound was something that should be rejected as like a bourgeois indulgence in film. And that what you should do is like Ziga Vertov montage film where the sound either does exist or is at a counter purpose to the image. And uh, so I, I thought at that time that uh, I didn't really need to watch anything that was particularly narrative heavy or plot driven. And my reaction to this series of Twin Peaks made me think that I had gone 180 degrees the opposite direction, that what I really wanted now out of my entertainment was something that I could follow uh, linearly uh, from start to finish when I get home from work because I'm now very old and not a film major anymore and blah, blah, blah. Um, and it turns out that I was exactly wrong about myself, as usual, and that what I needed was something completely in the opposite direction, something really, really wacko and out there and brilliant that worked on just an unconscious Lynchian level to get me back on board with the whole endeavor. So I feel energized by it. I feel happy that it happened. And I'm just all the way back on board with whatever is going on in the next 10 hours uh, after the brief hiatus here. Ken, I agree yeah. with you. And then, although I passed a very uneasy night <laughs> immediately after watching it Sunday night, I felt kind of, yeah, like just as you said, sort of energized and kind of restored in this weird way and kind of like. I don't know, optimistic about the possibilities of television, cinema, art. I don't know, something, but it, it, uh, it was, it was, it was invigorating and kind of wonderful. And, uh, I really, really loved this episode and it made me feel something I don't think I felt in a long time. And it, it was, it was just, like I said, amazing that it aired. <laughs> it slipped through the cracks or whatever, you know, uh, it was, it was beautiful. I really loved it. So I agree with you, uh, in large part, Ken. And and I'm glad to know that the sense that the life had been sucked out of me that I've been carrying around through three sleepless nights got to to Ken and Jeff so that it wasn't squandered entirely. Uh, it's funny that Ken mentions uh, you know our taste changing as we as we get older. I'm I'm starting to think at this stage of my life I'm I'm no longer ready for pure heroin David Lynch the way I was in my twenties. Uh, I think at this point I'm I'm more up for David Lynch methadone maybe uh, perhaps a, a David Lynch dry martini with a toothpick through a Bob olive. Um, I, I, I will say that, that Jeff intrigues me a little bit with the, uh, the Vanderbilt agrarian uh, new criticism of, of the poem. I, I'd like to explore that with him a little bit uh, separately. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I think Mark Frost wrote a script that was heavily rooted in the secret history of Twin Peaks. 
And then David Lynch chose to shoot an interpretive dance about that script. And, and he reimagined it as this Cold War public school duck and cover public service announcement filtered through a racer hit, uh, through a racer head and filmed using a lava lamp for a lens. I mean, it was, it was wild. And, and, and what I keep thinking back to, uh, because everything has to come back to Watchmen eventually, uh, is the Pax Americana issue of the multiversity, in which Grant Morrison was uh, doing this extended meta-commentary on Watchmen using the original Charlton Comics characters that Alan Moore used as the basis for, for Watchmen. And there's a scene where Captain Adam, who is this almost inhumanly intellectual character, but who nevertheless loves his dog, wants to figure out why he loves his dog. So he uses his powers to break the dog down into its component parts. He effectively vivisects this dog with his mind. And what he discovers, of course, is that the dog was greater than the sum of its parts. By breaking it down into its component pieces, he has learned nothing and he has destroyed the dog. And and as I look at episode eight of, of Twin Peaks The Return, it was beautiful and haunting and riveting and frustrating and unsettling, and it was meant to be all of those things, and it was meant to remain all of those things. I mean, th- there's a level on which you're not supposed to get it. You're not supposed to get it now. You're not supposed to get it 10 episodes from now. And, and my fear is that if I take something that was intended to be approached emotionally and impressionistically and subconsciously, and I do what I do, and that is try and attack it intellectually and break it down into easy little pieces that fit together neatly so I can organize them in tiny little boxes that I created solely for my own convenience, all I'm going to get will be messy components that add up to less than the whole. And and that being the case, uh, I think my approach to this is Instead of repeating Captain Adam's error by trying to define what makes a dog a dog or take a dog apart to identify the pieces, I think, scratch that, I feel that what I need to do is just love the dog and let that be that. But you know who else broke down a dog into its component pieces, Kyle? Bad Cooper. Bad Cooper broke down Mr. Strawberry, the dog, into component (laughs) pieces and mailed them out. I have one final thing to say, and I'd like to credit my friend Dan for pointing this out. Uh, The other character who uh, says got a light again and again in the Twin Peaks corpus is Dick Tremaine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I rest my case. All right. We're going to go out on that. Thanks, everybody. That's the end of episode eight. Thanks a lot, everybody. a drink that you don't pour now when you take one sip you won't need any more you're small as a beetle or big as a wheel boom atomic cocktail falls a splice all around the place when you see it coming just grab your suitcase it'll send you through the skies like air mail boom atomic cocktail you push a button, turn a dial Your work is done for miles and miles When it hits a bound to shake Because you feel just like an earthquake 
That's the drink that you don't pour When you take one sip you won't need any more You're small as a beetle, a big as a whale Boom! Atomic cocktail Turn a dial Your work is done for miles and miles When it hits bound to shake Because it feels like an earthquake That's the drink that you don't pour Now when you take one sip You won't need any more If you're small as a beetle Or big as a whale Atomic cocktail